All right, this is 1 Corinthians Boot Camp. So if you have a Bible, open with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. It's right next to 2 Corinthians, all right? Uh, Next door to Romans. So book of 1 Corinthians, 16 chapters here in Paul's letter to this church in in Corinth. Uh, It's been said that the sins of the culture um, eventually become the sins of, of the church, that is true in our day, and it was true, sadly, in, in, in the day of Corinth as well, the day that Paul is, is writing here. Uh, Corinth is a city that was yeah, it's filled with love of worldly wisdom. They loved traveling philosophers. Uh, philosophers would come, and they would, they would pontificate all over town, and people would come and hear them, and the Corinthians loved that. Uh, yeah, they were, they were a, a city that was, that was proud. They were proud of their city. We'll just see some of the reasons why as we get in here. There was a lot of perversion in this city. Um, and sadly, these sins of the culture crept in to the church as, as well. Now, what we're going to do as we come to the, this book of 1 Corinthians, is we're going we're to start here in verse 1-1 and get a little bit of the background who these people are that Paul's writing to. So look with me here at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So Paul, and who does Paul say that he is here right out of the gate? He's an apostle, right? So he is one who is sent with the authority of whom? Yeah, of Christ Jesus, of the risen Lord Jesus. So Paul is representing him as he is writing this letter. He comes with uh, apostolic authority. He is called by God uh, and God's will to further God's will. And he's got a close relationship with this church here in Corinth. Does anybody know why? Yeah, he, he founded it. He, he planted this church. So on his second missionary journey in the book of Acts uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 7, we see that he, he went there, uh, preached the gospel, and, and started, started the church. So he cares for this church as a, as a spiritual father. But he is writing to them with the authority of the Lord Jesus. So this is not just the church that he cares about, but it's also the church that Jesus cares about because Jesus has purchased this church with his own blood. And he's got his, his sidekick here, Sosthenes. So he's not an apostle. He's just a, a ministry partner here who would have been known, uh, a guy who's known and respected by uh, the Corinthians. He would have very likely been, if you remember from Acts 18, there was a synagogue leader who got converted through the preaching of the gospel, and his name was Sosthenes. So it's very likely that this is the former leader of the synagogue there in Corinth who now is working with, with Paul in, in ministry. So that's, that's the author. It's Paul the Apostle. And then in verse 2, uh, we have the audience. To the church of God that is in, in Corinth. So we read that, and that seems normal to us. But if, you didn't, if we were back in the first century and you read that, this would have been one of the most unlikely things imaginable. That there is a church in Corinth. Now, we mentioned already that Corinth was, um, yeah, it was a well-known city, so it was an, an ancient uh, port city that was located between uh, Sparta and Athens, okay, so some, some big-name other cities nearby. It was rebuilt by Julius Caesar in uh, 44 B.C., following its destruction back in 146 B.C. by the Romans. 
And in Paul's day, it had a population of somewhere between 80 and 100,000 people who were living there. Now, a lot of this information is on that sheet uh, that I gave you at the, at the very beginning, some of the background information. A lot of this is there. Um, one of the things that uh, the Corinth was famous for was every other year it hosted uh, some games. Anybody know what games? Well, kind of like the Olympics, the Isthmian Games. So this was, this was big time. This put them, this put this, uh, th- them on, on the map. It was a, a city that was marked by, by trade and tourism. So it had a booming economy, um, and, and lots of travelers would come there because they had really everything that you could want if you were, if you were yeah, looking for a good time or maybe even to find health. So one of the things that Corinth was known for was uh, the holistic medicines. And while you're there, you're also going to get wiser because of all these traveling philosophers who would come through there and, and post up on a street corner and start pontificating for everybody to hear. Also, the... Uh, uh, it was known for entertainment in both art and, and sport. Um, there religiously, polytheism uh, abounded. So there was temples to Apollo and Aphrodite and Poseidon and many, many other uh, gods that have been discovered in, in archaeological history. They also worshipped the Roman emperor. Okay? And there was a small Jewish population. As we mentioned in Acts 18, there was a, a synagogue there as well. This city was also known for its materialism, its perversion, its greed, its cutthroat business dealings. Uh, it had some yeah, kind of snooty intellectualism. They were, the, they were the smart city. They're wild, but they were also smart, you know. Um, one author summarized Corinth like this. Paul's Corinth was at once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. So all three kind of wrapped up into one. Right Now, of all places on the planet, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I'm going to get some people out of there. And he sent the gospel in, and the gospel does what the gospel does. It, it brings dead people to life, gives blind people eyes to see, and people were, were born again. In this city of sin, God worked a miracle. Right? He called a people out for himself and made them like himself, to be holy. There to be a holy people in a very unholy city. Now, if you remember, Paul's custom, whenever he would go into a city in the book of Acts, first place he would roll into is where? To a synagogue, because he's got kind of a common ground there. He can say, hey, listen, the guy you've been looking for, Messiah, his name's Jesus. That starts a riot, but everybody who believes goes with him, and that's how a church starts. All right? So this is, this is exactly what happened there in, in Corinth. Um, you, you can find that in Acts 18. He stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half. Eighteen months after the church began, he stayed and he discipled them for a year and a half. Again, this is one of those scenes where I'd like, I'd love to have just listened in on those lessons for, for 18 months there. After that, he left for Jerusalem by way of Ephesus. Then in the fall of 53 AD, Paul returned to Ephesus as part of his third missionary journey. You find that in Acts 19. And during his time there, he wrote... Um, a letter that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that was not an inspired letter. Uh, it was just a letter that he wrote to them that was misunderstood by the Corinthians. Um, and then he receives word back about some divisions that are going on in the church. So then he wrote this letter that we're studying to yeah, re- rebuke some sinful behavior that's going on and also to reply to some of the concerns that they had and they wanted Paul's wisdom on. Okay? 
And those two things really kind of um, serve as the outline for the whole book. So if you look on, the, on your sheet there, you're going to see the book is divided into two major six, uh, sections. Chapters 1 through 6, rebukes, and then 7 through 16, replies. He is going to address some things that he's heard going on in the church that's, that's not godly, that's not good. And then he's going to reply in the second half of his letter to a number of things that they've asked questions about. So those two things kind of serve as, as the, the, the big picture of, of how this, this book is, is laid out. Okay? Um, Paul wrote um, two more letters to the Corinthian church after this. Another one that was not inspired and then another one that is inspired and has been preserved. And that's the book of, of 2 Corinthians. Um, that's yeah, a, a wonderful book uh, for your own your study as well. Okay? So that's a little bit uh, about the background of that there's a church in Corinth in the most unlikely of things. Now, we started off by saying that the sins of the culture always become the sins of the church. And what we're going to find is that all that stuff that we just described about Corinth, though the church is to be set apart there, they have, yeah, they've remained enamored with the culture of their city, and it has affected them in many ways that the gospel should have. So rather than being a wholly set-apart people, not all of them were, and it was beginning to really spread like a cancer within the church. And this is why Paul writes really a pretty, pretty straightforward letter to them. Okay? So what we're going to do now is let's, let's dive into this first big section. Chapters 1 through 6, rebukes concerning sin. So he's heard about division. He's heard about perversion. And he's heard about some lawsuits that are going on within the church. And these are a couple of the things that he's going to be addressing here. But right out of the gate, before he, before he puts it on them and lets them have it, he's going to start by encouraging them, which is always a good place. So before you let somebody have it, you're like, so Jesus loves you and I love you. Now let's talk. <laughs> so it's a little bit like that. Um, and we're going to see here uh, in verses 1 through 9, our introduction, there's going to be encouragement uh, to the saints in Sin City. Now, as we read through this, there's something I think you should notice, just watch for. In each of the first nine verses, Jesus shows up nine times. He's in every single verse in these opening nine verses. Now, why do you think Paul does that? What is he, what's he trying to do for this, this, this church? Yeah, so he's going to claim his authority over them, right? Because he's coming in the name of Christ, right? He's going to tell them later that they, they're, they don't belong to themselves anymore. They've been bought with a price. What else is he wanting to do? Yeah, their, their eyes are on the mirror with how awesome they look and on their social media following and how awesome everybody else thinks they are. And he says, you need to get your eyes off of that and you need to get your eyes back on Jesus, because he is your hope. He is the one who truly gives you, gives you life. Okay? All right, let's, let's, let's check it out here. Verse uh, 1 through 3. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So right out of the gate, Paul wants to remind them who they are in Christ. 
That He's called them to be both a holy people and a humble people. They're to be both holy and humble. And both of these things are seen here. The fact that they're to be holy. Notice what He calls them there. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now what's the word sanctify mean? Anybody know? Yeah, it means set apart. You could also be translated holy. So some of your translations may even say the holy ones in Christ Jesus. Right? They are set apart in Christ. They used to be in the world and of the world, but now by His grace He has pulled them out and He has set them apart. Now oftentimes when we think about sanctification, we think about it in the sense of the progressive being made like Jesus. That's totally true. But it's also used here positionally. They are positionally set apart here from the world and they are set apart unto Christ. They are being made like Jesus. They've been converted and now their position, their standing with God is that they are, they are His. They're set apart. That's true in their standing. should also be in their stepping, in their living. Not so much, but that's what the rest of the letter is about. Okay? Now, not only are they to be humble or holy, but they're also to be, I just said it, humble. That's right. <laughs> um, notice here, called to be saints together with all in every place. So they are called by God, which is a high honor. They should recognize the God of the universe, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting, for some unfathomable reason, called them unto himself. And then united them with other believers. Now what this does is it emphasizes their position in Christ and their unity with all other believers. And this is really important because... They thought they were special because of their place in Corinth, because it's the sexy city, right? We're the church in the sexy city. And then, also, they thought of their distinction from all other believers. They saw themselves as the wise and the gifted church. You know, everybody else was just blessed to even know them. Well, what Paul does right here is he wants, he's giving them some reasons to see themselves as they should, which is humble. That their true position is not where they live, but it's, it's who loves them. In Christ, right? And that they're actually one among many believers, that they are united with all. And this is, so it's, it's actually what, it's not what makes them, it's not what dis, um, makes them distinct that makes them special. It's what they have in common with all other believers that makes them special. The grace of God. Right? Well, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, what does grace mean? Yeah, free, unmerited favor. Nothing that could be earned or deserved. He says, grace to you. Which they've already seen and they need more. And he's, he's proclaiming it over them. And then here, peace. Peace with God. Peace with others. So right out of the gate, he wants to remind them of their true identity. They are to be holy and humble because they are in Christ. This undermines the, the worldly ideas of, of what's really important. Because in the world, what makes you important or special? Yeah, who you know, what you have, what you've done. But, but in Christ, <laughs> who you know, Jesus, is what matters. What He's done is what matters. And where you're going, not where you've been, but where you're going, which is with Him to the new heaven and new earth. That's what matters. It's completely opposite of the way that the world sees everything. And He, from the, from the, the outset, is reminding them of that. Now, we're going to make it through verse 9, then we'll pause for some questions and see if you guys have any, okay? Uh, verses 4 through 9. 
I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So before Paul rebukes them, which he's going to, but before he does that, he wants to make sure they know that they are loved by God and by Him. Because this is his motive in writing to them. He cares for them because he knows who, uh, that, that, that Christ loves them. Now notice two things here. There's some thanksgiving and there's some encouragement. First, the thanksgiving. Look again at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you. Now that's really remarkable. I don't know about you, but whenever you've got somebody in your life that's kind of difficult, is normally the first thing that you're doing for them just, God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this person and the way that they're... Always giving me opportunity to trust you, Lord. Like, is that, is that normally? That's not our natural response, right? Thanksgiving for difficult people. Well, Paul, though, he does give thanks. Because, and even though they've grieved God and grieved him, he thanks God for them. Because even though they're sinful, they're still loved by God. Now, what do you think gives Paul that perspective? How can he deal with people so thankfully? Yeah, he wasn't so great neither, right? He was killing Christians, right? This guy is a debtor to grace, and he knows that. So when he speaks, he speaks out of a well of grace that he has received from God. So, so the more you're aware of the grace that you need, the easier it is to give God thanks for people, no matter how difficult they may be, right? So he thanks God for the grace he's, he's given them. He mentions uh, about their speech here, the confession of Jesus that they have made, their knowledge, the truth that the Holy Spirit is teaching them, their gifting, the manifestations of, the, uh, of Christ's life by the Spirit in them. And above all, he thinks about the hope of Christ's return, that one day he's going to be with them. And he knows that because of what God has begun in, the life, in their life, God is faithful to keep it all the way to the end and someday he'll return and they'll all be together in a land where they will sin no more. And he's writing this letter to help make sure that happens. So that's why he gives thanks. And then he gives encouragement. Verse 8, Who will assist you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's encouraging them to know that he who called them will do what? He'll keep them. He'll keep them. And he will make them stand how? What's the word there? What's it say? Blameless on the last day. That is amazing. These people who there's going to be tons of stuff to be able to point your finger at, what God does in salvation is that he, he rescues us from our sin in such a way that on that last day when we stand before Him, what God sees is not all of our sin. Because where is all of your sin if you're a believer? Yeah, Colossians chapter 2 says it's nailed to the cross. 
So the way that God sees you now, if you are in Christ, it's you're justified. You are declared righteous. Not that you are completely righteous. We're being made more and more righteous, hopefully day by day. But our position in Christ is forgiven, is cleansed, is washed. And he says that same assurance that you have now is yours on that last day, blameless before God Almighty. He wants them to see that and to before he corrects them, to remind them that Jesus' blood makes them blameless. To bolster this, this mindset of both humility and holiness. Okay. Now just one other thing I think is important to note here, that he calls them saints. It's interesting that he doesn't call them sinners. So Christians are saints who sin. I think it's an important way to think about your identity is that you're a saint who sins. Saint meaning set apart one. So a lot of times we'll call ourselves sinners. It's actually used of unbelievers. If you're in Christ, we're no longer identified by our sin, but now by our salvation. That we are saints who struggle with sin, who battle sin, who, who fight it day in and day out. Okay? So he is going to reason with them from here on out from their redeemed status. So that's his introduction. He gives them some encouragement and some thanksgiving. Anybody have any questions about this, this little bit of intro and the way he starts things off with them here? Yeah, so, I mean, that's a very long conversation. I'm having to give you more, more on that. I mean, I think the short of it is that these other two letters have not been preserved. God preserves His Word always. He always does this, right? So we've never found 1 Corinthians and 3 Corinthians. Um, we've never found those. So 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 3 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians. Yeah, I know it sounds a little confusing, but... Um, yeah, I think it's a long story about how, to, how do we, you know, how's the Bible assembled and all those kinds of things. But the way we know it's inspired is the same spirit who wrote it is the same spirit who's in us and testifies that this is indeed true. All right, so I mean, that's a short answer of it. I'm happy to give you some more literature on that. It's a good question. Yeah. You said the saints who sin. <clears throat> what about saints who sin but are not repentant of the sin? Oh, we're going to get to that. Yeah, that's going to be chapter 6. He's going, he's going to give you a big warning about that. Yeah, yeah, so, so great question. Buckle up. Yeah, so that one's coming. All right. Uh, the question was, what about saints who, who don't repent of their sin? Okay, yeah. Go. All right, so now verse one, or, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through 420. Um, what we're going to see here are, the, and this is, yeah, we're going to belabor this because this is really the foundation for all the rest of the mess, is that there are deadly divisions that are going on in the Corinthian church because there's confusion about, about the gospel, about spirituality, and about authority. All these things are, are swirling about here in, in the Corinthian church. Okay? Um, now, evidently, as we're going to see, Paul gets word from Chloe's people. So it's probably some home group there in Corinth that gets word back to Paul. Paul, people are bugging here in Corinth. Here's what's happening. And he, she relays to, uh, to Paul uh, via a few brothers that you see in, um, in chapter 16 um, who 
who bring this word to Paul about, about the divisions that are going on. That there's these personality cults that are forming here in, in Corinth. So this is the first thing out of the gate that Paul is going to, to address. Um, so verse 110, all the way through verse 117, we're going to first see some troubling tribalism. Troubling tribalism. Verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanos. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. <laughs> Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So again, Paul gets word from Chloe's people, probably somebody who's well-known there in, in Corinth. Um, you know, we don't, don't know exactly how, and some people are like, oh, is, is Chloe, is she a snitch? What's she doing? Like, no, 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 this is love. This is love to let Paul know that there's trouble in the church, that the church is, verse 11, divided. Uh, the, the word in the original language for divided there is schismata. What word do we get? Schism, schism right? There's a schism. There's a, a rift. There's a, a tear, like a tear in a garment. That's what's happening here. There are divisions. There are splits. The body of Christ, the report is that the body of Christ is being torn, about, torn apart by something. And what is it that's tearing it apart? Pardon? Yeah, they're quarreling. And what are they quarreling over? Authority. They're divided into pastoral tribes. You see, Corinth, you've got to remember, this is where you start seeing the culture seep in. Corinth was a celebrity culture. You've got the famous traveling philosophers. You've got the famous athletes from the Isthmian Games. So the mindset of we love celebrities has seeped into the church in Corinth. So what begins to breed in the church is there's a spirit of competition that pitted uh, pastoral personalities against each other. Oh, this person's got this gifting, or well, this person has this style, or this person has this theological emphasis. And you've got different groups that are favoring different pastors. You've got, I'm of Paul, right? Because who, what, what makes Paul awesome? He's an apostle, right? I mean, he saw Jesus. He got knocked off his donkey by Jesus. Like, that's pretty awesome, right? He planted the church. We're a Paul. And they're like, oh, yeah? Well, remember, remember Apollos? That dude is, he's amazing. He's so eloquent, so wise, and so gifted, right? So you've got, you've got yeah, we're, we're Apollos. Oh, yeah? Well, what about Cephas or Peter, right? I mean, he's the rock, you know? I mean, that's what Jesus said, didn't he? Yeah? He's, he's the bold one, right? I mean, he's, he's the dude back in Jerusalem, which is really the, the real church. Right? And then, of course, you have the fundamentalists with the trump card. Well, I follow Christ, right? So that, that there's those guys, the super spiritual ones, right? Which, of course, it's good to follow Jesus, but you've got the, 
I'm the with Jesus guys. Right? And they're the ones that kind of look down on everyone else, I'm sure. So Paul questions there in verse 13. Is Christ divided? It, it is foolish to follow the world's model of this celebrity culture. To give inappropriate adoration to mere men. Was, was Paul crucified for you, he says? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Who baptizes you is not important, he says. And then he goes on, Paul, he says, Paul didn't come to get a bunch of, you know, baptism groupies. This is not why he's ministering. He came with the gospel. This is what he's about. Now, he's not belittling baptism at all, but he's putting it in his proper place. Baptism is a sign of what happens because the gospel has happened in somebody's life, right? Now, this clarification is vital for the rest of the section. In, in 118, all the way down through 420, and really the, the whole rest of the book, this is what's kind of going on in the midst of this congregation. And what Paul's about to do is he's about to lift up the gospel of Christ and him crucified as the power that the Corinthians ought to be boasting in. You want to boast about something? Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about the cross. That's what their hope ought to be in. But instead, there's this danger of exalting ministers and ministry styles and baptisms and gifts and experiences and freedoms. And what it's doing is it's causing divisions among, among the church. Right? Now, when you do that, verse 17, when you, when you emphasize all those things and think that that's what's important, verse 17, the cross of Christ is emptied of its power. Not that it can actually lose power, but what? What's he saying here? Pardon? Yeah. So if, if they are, if they're all they're focused on is which pastor is awesome and which ministry is the best and which tribe you're in, their eyes, again, are not on the cross. They're not, not on Christ. Empties it of its power. Well, the goal of this exhortation there in 110... I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He is giving here an, an urgent appeal for unity. And he invokes here again the authority of Christ. He's acting as an apostle here. He's saying, I'm coming in the name of Jesus with this rebuke. He wants them to agree. The word means to say the same thing. He wants them united in the same mind. He wants them knit together with the same thinking. He wants them to have the same judgment, meaning the same opinion. He's pleading for the Corinthians to be unified around the cross of Christ. Now, one of the things I think is really important to point out here is that unity does not mean uniformity. I mean, you want to talk about a diverse church. The Corinthian church would have been all kinds of diverse People from all over the globe with all sorts of different cultures and ethnicities and preferences and experiences and socioeconomic stuff. I mean, all over the board, right? So he's not asking for everybody to dress the same, look the same, vote the same. That's not what he's talking about here. What is he talking about here? What is the kind of unity that he wants? Yeah, they, he wants them to be like-minded about Jesus. I don't know if you picked up or not, but Jesus is now mentioned five more times in the verses we just read. 
That's 14 times in 17 verses. Y'all want to boast about something? Y'all want to rally around about something? Around Jesus. He is the one to look to. So he's calling them to be, to be unified. Now, only other clarification I want to give here is he is holding up unity. And I think it's going to be really evident through the rest of the, the letter, but that unity should come at great cost. It always, if you're going to be unified, it's going to come at great cost. But it does not come at all costs. So I'll give you a quote from J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite old dead pastors. Never let us be guilty of sacrificing any portion of truth upon the altar of peace. So what holds them together is not just that they've had some you know, group therapy sessions and they can figure out how to get along. What's helping them is the gospel that they all have in common, that they were dead sinners doomed for hell, but that there was a Savior who came and rescued them through the power of the cross, and that should be their boast. And the world ought to look at them and say, there ain't nothing to go get all these people together except, except why are you all together? Well, his name is Jesus. You know, I mean, if you even look around this room, I mean, we're a fairly diverse bunch with not a whole lot in common, I'm betting. We can start going around and talking about our lives, and there's probably not a whole lot. Some stuff. But what holds us together is Christ. Right? Now, he's going to move there from troubling tribalism to, to true wisdom. He's, he's going to go further on this idea of the cross and, 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 and the power of it. And what we're going to see is that this, this truth of the cross and this power of the cross, what it does is it, it divides humanity. It divides humanity. There's going to be two responses to the cross. One, is, one sees the cross as wise and one sees it as foolish. And it's going to result in two destinies, one to eternal life and the other to perishing. And all this is intended to help the Corinthians to boast in the cross of Christ, which is true wisdom. Now, all this talk about wisdom, the reason he's doing this, you've got to remember, is because they're in Corinth and they love the philosophers. They're getting caught up in all of that. They, they love the wisdom. All right, all right uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Um, let's start there. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the what? The power of God. Right, so he, he contrasts the, the current state of all people. People are either, now listen, this is very important. This is your worldview, the Christian worldview. There's, there's two types of people right now. Those who are what? Perishing. And those who are being saved. Notice that. There's no neutral. There's no like, well, I haven't decided about Jesus. Jesus is like, okay, well, that means you're against me. You're either perishing or being saved. And their current evaluation of the cross. The perishing see the cross how? As what? Folly. It's really interesting. In the original language, the word is uh, moriah, which we get the word moron. This is moronic. The cross is absolutely moronic. Morons believe that. It's craziness. But the believing see it as the power of God. The word for power is dunamis. What do we get? Dynamite is power. It's either crazy or it's amazing, depending on how you view Jesus, right? 
Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He's quoting here from Isaiah 29.14 where God warned Israel to not trust in the empty wisdom of the nations and their idols. And basically Paul, one of the things Paul does a little bit here in this letter, he talks a little bit of smack, he's doing that here, and he uses a little bit of sarcasm. You're going to see both of them come out. Uh, They like rhetoric, he's going to use some rhetoric with them, all right? Um, now, he, where's the wise? He's talking here about the, the learned, the educated, the scribe. Where's the expert in, in the law? Where's the rabbi, the, the debater? These are those traveling philosophers again. What he's showing is that at the cross, all self-sufficiency and all human wisdom proves utterly powerless. All these guys who are strutting around with all this worldly wisdom, they can't save you from your sins. They might sound impressing, but there's no power in them. They don't make dead people come to life. That's what the gospel does. The gospel makes dead people come alive. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So God has granted salvation, but people cannot achieve it in their own wisdom. Rather, they must submit to what? To the foolishness of God's wisdom in the cross. 122, the Jews demand signs. Prove it to me. The Greeks seek wisdom. I need some logical explanation for this. Verse 23, not, but we preach who? Christ And how? Crucified, right? A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul reminds them here that the message of believers is a message that is strange and sounds really in one sense like a contradiction. You've got Christ, who is the triumphant, powerful, glorious one, who is crucified, who's, he's, he got killed. That's weakness, that's shame of all the ways to be shamed publicly. That's the way to do it, it's crucifixion. And how is that received? Well, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. It's, the, the word there is scandalon, it's scandalous, right? Our Messiah murdered? On, on a cross like a blasphemous criminal? Mm-mm. And the Gentiles, I mean, how many of you used to think Christianity was the stupidest thing you ever heard? I mean, I sure did. I, I, I thought y'all and me, I thought we were just Looney Tunes, right? I thought it was absolutely crazy. The Gentiles, when they hear about Jesus, they're like, okay, so let me get this straight. God has a son, and he was born of a virgin, right? Just happened to be a virgin, yeah, I'm sure. In a barn, right? He worked with his dad till he was 30, and then he's God. Right? And, and then he, he did a bunch of miracles, and, and then he was crucified. Right? I'm sure he was blameless. And then, and then he rose from the dead. Right? Yeah. And now you can't see him, uh-huh. and he's going to come back on a white horse. Right? Let me just get, make sure all this is right. Okay? What we believe is absolutely crazy, but it's amazingly true. It's amazingly true. 
to those who are called by the power of God, they see it. And they, we look at it and be like, I understand. And, and what we learn here in this first chapter of Corinthians is that God set it up that way. God rigged salvation so that proud people would not see it. You've got to humble yourselves to God's wisdom. To see power that God took my sin and the wisdom of the cross that, that God beat Satan with his own stick with the cross. Like, God does that. Verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jesus shows glory by coming in weakness, not power. Rather than killing His enemies, He dies for them. Rather than swinging a sword, He carries a cross. The Gospel is unlike anything that we could ever imagine. It's, it's, just, it's not something that people come up with. I forget who said it first, but I heard somebody once say, the Bible is not a book that people would write if they could write it. I mean, there's no way you're going to compile this in the way that it is. Nor is it a book that you would write if you could. Because in every other religion, in some way, shape, or form, who's awesome? Really, people are awesome. In some way, shape, or form. The way you get to heaven is because you do enough good deeds. And you get to heaven and God's like, hey, pretty good. In some way, shape, or form. But in Christianity, God says, y'all can't do it. I'm going to come down and do it for you. He's going to live a life unlike one we ever lived, die on the cross to take all the judgment we deserve, and then rise from the dead, and now give a free gift that we didn't do anything to earn or deserve. It's completely by grace, which is utter foolish. God's brilliance shows the world's ignorance. The weakness of the cross shows what true strength is. Now, verse 26. <laughs> you, need, you need some examples, he says? <laughs> Look around. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says, look around the room. God didn't call the elite. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, we're here to encourage you, but encourage you appropriately. Okay? God's like, he didn't, he didn't pick you know, the best of the litter. He's highlighting that generally speaking, the church is made up of a bunch of misfits, outcasts, lowly, and not the most brilliant. Yes, there are exceptions. Some of you, I'm sure, in this room. <laughs> but, but God just does not pick the sharpest tool in the shed to work with. That's not what He does. Because God is most glorified when He works through those who are least able. So, by the way, anytime you feel like I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I don't have this, God's like, I know, that's why I called you. So that in your weakness, true strength can be seen. So that you can know my power through my presence. That I will supply everything you need to do everything I've called you to do. God didn't call us because we were awesome. He called us because He's awesome. And to show His awesome power in and through our weakness. All right. I mean, just think about it. 
God, he loves, one of the things he loves to use in the Bible is barren women. I mean, he seems to love, whenever he's going to do something amazing with somebody, so very often, whether it be Sarah or Hannah or Elizabeth or Mary, he's working in a, in a most miraculous way. Or if, if you read through the genealogy of Jesus, you think your family tree is bad. Listen, y'all. Read Jesus' family tree, okay? It's, it's bad messed up. There's liars and adulterers and uh, slanders, everything you can think of, adulterers, everything. It fills his genealogy. He does this, 129, to ensure that no human being might boast in the presence of God. As I said a, a second ago, nobody struts into heaven. Nobody's strutting into heaven. Nobody. <laughs> This is why Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit who know I've got nothing. I've got nothing, but, but He supplies all of my needs. That's the posture that is pleasing to God. But when you're full of yourself, it's hard to see that. But when we stand accepted before God and point to Jesus, we say, chapter 1, verse 30, that He became wisdom to us from God. Wisdom came down to us. We didn't figure out our way up to heaven. Babel doesn't work. Jesus has to come down, right? Talks about our righteousness here, that His faithfulness is our boast. Talks about Him being our sanctification, that His work set us apart. Talks about redemption. His death paid the ransom that rescued us. God made salvation rest on Jesus, 131. So that is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Great Old Testament story, um, I think captures this, is the story of Naaman. You remember him? The commander uh, of the army of the king of Aram, where he becomes a what? He becomes a leper. And you remember that um, the army had probably killed her parents, and she's there, and she tells him, hey, I know, I know how you can get your leprosy healed. This little slave girl says, you need to go back to Israel and talk to the prophet. And uh, so through a, little, through a little slave girl, he goes, he goes back and he meets Elisha. And Elisha, he comes in there and he says, uh, what do I need to do? How much do I need to give you? And he's like, you can give me no money. Here's what you need to do. You need to go wash seven times in the Jordan River. And what does Naaman do? the Jordan River. That's Trash River. That's Potomac River. Okay? Like that's, you don't, you don't get in that river. That's nasty. You don't eat anything out of there, three-headed fish. You don't know. All right? He goes, not the Jordan River. He goes, aren't there, aren't there rivers in my land that are even better? And he says, that's your option. And walks away. Right? And he does. He, he goes and he humbles himself. And seven times, he goes in, washes, two, three, Four, five, six. And then on the seventh time, he comes out and it says his skin was healed like a baby. God made him humble himself under the wisdom, not of some better river or some, you know, pile of money or just some miracle that a prophet would do. But rather, God wanted this man to recognize who rules the world. And Naaman, that's how he came, that's how he got healed. Now, I'll pause there for a moment before we go into the, the two wisdoms. We're going we're to try and make it through chapter 2 um, before our, our first break. But I want to see any, anything about chapter 1 there that you have a question about. 
Yeah. Yeah. What, what, does he, what does he mean when he says, I was sent to preach the gospel but not baptized? Is that contradicting the Great Commission? Yeah. I think what he's doing here is he's just simply emphasizing the main point of his ministry is to preach the gospel. Paul certainly is... The churches are going to baptize people too. So as long as the people are getting baptized, that's, that's what matters. Paul's main focus is he's going to go in and he's going to proclaim the gospel. And he wants people, that's what he's about. So he's certainly not opposed to baptism in any way, shape, or form. He's not belittling it. He's just putting it in its right place. Because all these people are like, oh, well, Paul baptized me. I'm amazing. And he's like, Alice, I don't care about baptism. doesn't mean he's not, but it doesn't mean, you know what I'm saying. So I... I, I I think that's what he's doing. It's a matter of emphasis to help correct some of their misunderstanding about what was ultimately important, right? So, yeah. Um, in verse 18, it talks, uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, Paul mentioning that there are people who are perishing in uh, who are being saved. Now, when we go out, like, let's just say, when we go out of here and we're interacting with people, how do we look at them as through this lens but not as projects? Yeah. So how do we, with the reality that people are perishing, not look at people as projects, just people to try and save? Um, I think you pray, right? And you pray and you ask God to help you to see lost people like he does. That, that our hearts would be broken for people. And then I think you just spend, you spend time with people. So I'm, I'm, I'm all for some open air evangelism. I think that, that could be good. But if that's the only thing you ever do, and you never build relationships with, with people who don't know the Lord, um, I think that, that might, not be, might not be the wisest thing. I think there's something that comes with, um, first of all, <laughs> remembering what God did for you and how he saved you, and then just asking God to give you a heart to really love people. Because the same thing can happen for you know, helping other Christians. You know? they can, we can always use people regardless of what it is that we're using them for. Um, so... Yeah, I think it's really going to come through prayer because prayer is where God gives us the heart that he has. And I think reading his word, it'll, it'll change us. So I don't think there's anything magical, but I think we have to be intentional. So, yep. In the very beginning, you talked about the sins of the culture are the sins of the day. And the culture in America is changing. Yep. The speed of light is not necessarily a good change. How, how are we supposed to think about the fact that things are being accepted in the culture that it's good. Yeah. So we we're going to hit some more on that in a minute. I'm, I'm not. I'm really not kicking you down the road to where. But but we are going to hit on that. But I do think it's important that that watching here this that this is a temptation of every age. So in every age, there's going to be a temptation to acclimate to what is popular and acceptable. And I would say, especially in our day, one of our biggest idols is is our image, that we want people to think well of us. I mean, we're the selfie generation to where how do us, right? And I mean, and this, this is part of the self-esteem gospel that we've had for the past 25 years in the church, where, listen, we, you don't need more self-esteem. Jesus died to forgive your self-esteem. Self-esteem is what, what, what leads us to live a life about us, that I need to think big about me. Actually, what we need is Christ's esteem. Right, so we've been set up well by Satan for the past few decades to be just, you know, chewing on that mindset that we're important and we're awesome. Um, so I think we need, by God's grace, uh, to risk much for Jesus and be willing, by His grace, to stand um, in His strength. And I think over time He'll 
He'll purify his church. So. Let's move on to verse uh, chapter 2, and then we'll take a couple more questions to round out the session, okay? Chapter, chapter 2. He's going to move now into talking about, about two, two wisdoms here, okay? Two, two wisdoms. Chapter 2, uh, verse 1 through 16. What we're going to see is that Paul is going to contrast uh, the wisdom of the world, which is flashy, and the wisdom of God, which is about faithfulness and, and really is foolish to, to the world. And uh, it's, it's, yeah, this is what g- the Holy Spirit gives this kind of wisdom to, to God's people. We're going to see that show up here. Now, one other, one other thing, just to kind of keep in mind, we've been talking about these traveling philosophers. One other thing about them that's important. So you had these, the sophists, uh, it comes from the Greek word for wisdom, the sophists. They were super duper popular. And what they did is they spoke to attract crowds. They would get up and um, they were trying to attract crowds and please crowds in order to get money and to get praise. So they would, they would speak and then they would pass the plate, as it were. And that's how they, that's how they made their, their, their living. And the, the bigger the crowd, obviously, the more money they got. And their whole thing was about uh, their style, their content, it was all about eloquence, okay, and, 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 and impressive. So they would, have, they would have been, you know, hashtag me, and they would have always been taking the, you know, the Instagram with their, their crowd, and it would have been trending, and that's, that's just kind of their mindset, right? Um, well, that's gotten into the church. And Paul says, no, 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 this is, that's not a wisdom that gives life. There's no power in that. It's fleeting. You need true wisdom that comes by the Holy Spirit from heaven. Let's see. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. He said, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ uh, Jesus and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul's ministry approach was very much unlike the flashy philosophers of his day. He he simply came, and he came simply. He, he He did not come to impress. He didn't bring worldly wisdom, but rather he brought the person and the work of Jesus, which again is, is laughed at by so many. Because his goal was not to wow people with his personhood or his presentation, but rather to wow them with Jesus. Now, and again, this, if this is true, uh, it might go all the more to show how God selects uh, people sometimes, but um, an, an early non-canonical writer, meaning not a biblical author, but uh, early second century, wrote this as a description of Paul. Evidently, people, some people had written down what he looked like. Okay? He was a man of uh, small stature, with a bald head and crooked legs, and a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting, and nose somewhat hooked, full of friendliness. So, he just wasn't chiseled like some kind of Greek god. So he would have walked in the room and he wouldn't have been the one that everybody's like, oh, look who's amazing. Just even his physical appearance, right? And his, his opponents teed off on this because evidently the way, he, the way he preached 
wasn't real exciting either. Listen to what, what is said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. For they, meaning these, these false teachers who were claiming to be apostles who were coming in with their showy ministry, for they say of Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Dude can't preach. It's basically what they're saying. And he responds there in verse 17 of chapter 10, 2 Corinthians, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one who the Lord commends. He says, I don't care what I look like. I don't care what I sound like. I'm here to deliver truth. God has given me his wisdom, and I'm just here to proclaim. Paul didn't try to be impressive to the world. He wanted them to be impressed with Jesus. His motive was clear. Look back here in, at verse 5. He says, So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul didn't find power in his looks or his eloquence or his humor or his intelligence or his ability to tell stories. Rather, he intentionally ensured that Jesus was the main event every time. Jesus is the main event in Paul's ministry. Which, by the way, for those of you who desire to be in ministry, just a, a friendly reminder, it's a great disservice to, to build people into you and into your personality or into, yeah, just into you. Because we, we're going to die. <laughs> like, we're not that awesome. Like, we're just, we're just people who stand up front and have a different gift. And our gift is to say, hey, here's what he says. We just deliver the mail. But it can be tempting to try and get people to like you and to think you're awesome. And I just want to encourage us to never, ever do that. Pray for your pastors. Verse 6 of chapter 2, Yet the mature, yet among the, the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He says true wisdom is not accessible by natural means. He says true wisdom is something that is hidden. It must be revealed by God. God has on purpose hidden wisdom. So the people, all the smart people are trying to figure it out, God hides it from them. It must be revealed. That, that other wisdom that people clamor to and, and, and use and, and it looks flashy, he says it is doomed to fail. But there is a wisdom that is destined for glory. The test of which wisdom it is, is who's exalted. Are people exalted? Is mankind exalted? Is our intellect exalted? Is our creativity exalted? Or is Jesus exalted? Now all those other things, they can be used in order to hold Jesus up. But very, very often, we get enamored by all that other stuff and not so impressed with Jesus. And what Paul wants us to do is to say, no, no, no. Jesus is where the power is. Beholding Him by faith. And rejection of Jesus is proof of the world's ignorance and arrogance. He says, that's why they killed him. So, beware of any wisdom that belittles Jesus or belittles sufficiency 
of his work and his teachings. God says, it may sound wise, but it's actually foolish. So if you leave a sermon, if you leave a church service, and you, you leave thinking, that was amazing, that experience was amazing, or those stories were amazing, or I just can't see how he ever got that from the text, he's like a magician, like, that's not really good. When you leave, what you should be thinking is, I want to read my Bible more because he showed me Jesus. And I want to know more about who Jesus is. That makes me want to open the book. That makes me want to pray. That makes me want to confess my sin. That makes me want to help other people to heaven. That makes me want to go talk to my neighbor who doesn't know the Lord. That makes me want to know Jesus and make him known. If that's what's produced, that's, that's a good sign. Okay. Verse 9, but as it is written, what no eye has seen or no ear has heard, the heart of man, uh, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So again, God's Hidden wisdom. The, the sad part about it is that it is what humanity is clamoring for. It's what they really they want to find it, but they can't find it by themselves. You can't find it in your, on your own. The wisdom is in Him, and it's given in us by the Holy Spirit. So you can't know true wisdom unless the Holy Spirit of God gives it to you and unites you with Jesus so that you see Jesus all of a sudden, for some reason, as precious. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is who teaches us to think like God thinks. That's what true wisdom is. That's where it comes from. I just think it's interesting to note here that God... How, how sweet this is, right? No eye, no, no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor heart imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. God is a good Father. And He loves to give His wisdom to His children. He loves to give it to them so they can know Him and love Him and enjoy Him. He loves to teach them that life is rigged and that true strength comes through weakness. And the true exaltation comes through service. <laughs> That's not something you're going to find in the world. And that true joy is in holiness. I mean, you never... <laughs> when was the last time you heard a commercial that stopped? Hey, by the way, everybody's been lying to you. What you're really looking for in life is holiness. Seek Jesus. Like, you don't ever see that commercial. But that's, that's the wisdom from above is that true joy and true happiness is found in being in Christ and being made like Christ. That's where true joy and peace comes from. Not buying a new Beamer. Verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart in, in, in this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly. Again, they are moronic to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So God freely gives wisdom to his people. He's a benevolent father. And that is Paul's only hope in ministry. That's our only hope in ministry is that the Holy Spirit will teach the truth, takes the truths of the gospel and apply it to hearts. So my only hope that any of this like impacts any of us, including me and including you, is that God's going to take something from his word and put it on your heart. And the weird thing, just being in ministry for about 20 years and watching people, it is amazing. We could walk out this door and I bet you each of you will take something a little bit different. Because God is wise in his care for each of his people, that he takes something that each of us need to hear and gives it to us in a way that is just wise and brilliant. But the natural person, the unbeliever, sees the wisdom of God as foolishness because they're blind to it. It's like they're trying to receive FM frequency, or, but they're tuned into the AM stations. You can't hear it. I remember early as a Christian, I read, um, there, was a, there was a brilliant professor. I, I wish I'd marked it because I would read it to you. It was so good. That this guy explained the gospel in one of the most beautiful, eloquent ways that you could just talked about Christ's perfect life and his suffering, his betrayal, his suffering, his torture on the cross and his, his going into the grave for three days and his glorious resurrection. And then, and then after he laid this whole thing out, just a nice paragraph, at the end of it he said, but of course we know this is all fantasy. And just went on to try and debunk it. But the dude totally understood it intellectually. But he didn't see. He couldn't see. Because the Spirit was not revealing it to him. And in his pride, he was rejecting God. I mean, I just remember as a, as a non-Christian how much I used to make. I always remember this one. Uh, there was a guy who was on our hall, a guy named Chang. And he was a believer. And I remember one time we were at lunch. And I remember him bowing his head to pray. And I was like, what are you doing, man? And I just started mocking him for praying over his meal. Because it was, to me, it was just, just dumb. And, and then I remember when I, when I became a Christian, about a year later, I remember all of a sudden, I started freaking out. I remember I sat down to watch TV, and I was like, everything's a lie. Every commercial's a lie. Every show's a lie. I was about, should I burn my TV? No, I see why they burn their TV. You know, like I, I just started losing my chips. It was, I mean, every, I was reading, I mean, everything I saw, I was like, lights were turned on. And all of a sudden, you see things as they really are. And the Holy Spirit's the only one who can do that. I started seeing my sin that I had never even seen before. Well, Verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord and so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So believers have the mind of Christ, and they don't need the wisdom of the world to know how to relate to God or to live in a way that is pleasing to God, to know what true love is. This is not saying, by the way, uh, that, that believers are above correction by others. Okay, this is not it. The NIV actually renders it really nicely here. Believers are not subject to merely human judgments. The point of what he's saying here is that natural man can't give believers ultimate wisdom and instruction about ultimate realities because they don't know them. They may have some great ideas about how to organize your rooms and be able to how to live life and organize your calendar, 
but, but they don't know God, and they can't help you know Him. This is only given by the Spirit. This is why believers must be very cautious regarding just the, the ideas, as you were mentioning, in our day of you know, just pop psychology, pop culture, atheistic science, about origins, sexuality, purpose. Like there is a wisdom of this age that will tell you what's true. But God's people need to spend time in God's word that we might hear God's voice, that we might be able to walk in God's ways, which is only possible by the Spirit as He shows us Christ in the word. So what we're going to do is we're going to pause. I'll take a a question or two, then we're going to take a break, then we're going to jump back into chapter 3. This is... We've made it about halfway through the first big section, which he's laying so much ground here because everything that comes after is really rooted in this idea of worldly wisdom and the way that it's splintering through the rest of the congregation. But any, any questions, Steve? Yeah, I think that it's very true. You know, I mean, we, and again, I'm not saying that we can't learn from people who, who don't know the Lord. I have unbelieving friends I'll learn a lot from. But we have to be very careful that there is indeed a wisdom of this age that's not ultimately about casting yourself upon Christ. It's about finding it within yourself to be able to do stuff. And there's, there's nothing there, ultimately. That's good. Yeah. How would you uh, address those who, who claim that unity is so important that they should uh, pitch themselves to a lot of these Including those who are non-confessional, those who claim that there is some sort of uh, uh, evolutionary biology that comes through God initiating it, those types of things. How would you address those within the church? Yeah. So, I, how do we address you know, linking up with with the new movements of the age and all that kind of stuff? I think it's going to be a case by case basis, right? So, I would what I would want to see is what are the particular churches uh, throwing away. Like, what, what, what are they saying? Well, we don't actually think that this is really what God meant. So, you know, we, we don't have the right to edit the scriptures, right? So, there's certainly groups that will do that, that will say, well, the, the Bible's a, a living document that, that, that ought to be interpreted in every age differently. Um, that's, that's a very dangerous way to approach the Bible, because that's, that's not how God intends it. He roots everything in creation. He knows everything from everlasting to everlasting. So, I don't want to say give you an answer on that generally. I would say it depends on what the issue is. And we want to look at each issue and see what is it going to cost if we're, if we're hitching up with this, right? So for instance, uh, old earth, young earth ideas, right? So I, I think there's, there's cases that, that can be made scientifically um, and, and seen through a Christian lens for uh, an old earth view. That being said, somebody who's going to hold an old earth view, there's a whole lot of questions that I'm going to have about, okay, what do you think about Adam and Eve? Now, if you're going to say, well, they, were, they evolved out of a, you know, a pot of 10,000 humanoids, I'm like, no, 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 then, then we've got to dismiss that. That's worldly wisdom, not at all. Because if you start throwing out a unique creation of Adam and Eve, yeah, I mean, the whole Bible falls apart. I mean, things Jesus says falls apart. So there's, it depends on what it is and what, what is being taken out. So I think, I think it has to be a case-by-case basis. So, Craig, last question. That's not about church aversion as in Christian. 
Yes, so, so there in, in, in 2.15, he's talking about unbelievers judging believers. So it would be like the philosophers walking in and being like, listen, everybody, dude up front is on the crazy train. There's nothing to this. If you really want to know what life is about, come downstairs. I'm going to have a session that's really going to tell you how to, how to get the most out of life. What Paul would say is, well, he might not be that impressive, but the fact is he's delivering the truth and true power is in that. And whatever you're going to say, if it's going to contradict anything in there, there's not real power in it. All right? So I think that's what he's saying. We're actually going to see in, in chapter 5 and beyond, I mean, actually the whole letter, he's judging them and correcting them. So believers certainly have to be subject to one another in that. It's good. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll take a break. Father, we thank you for the wisdom that is given by the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for the way that it absolutely obliterates pride. That there's none of us that can strut around thinking that we're wise. God, thank you for the foolishness of the cross and the way that it, it causes us to just throw, throw all of our wisdom and achievements aside and to, to simply receive by faith the grace given to us, purchased on the cross by Christ and solidified through the resurrection. And we pray, God, that you would help us to be a people who are holy and humble and wise according to your word. Lord, give us wisdom of how to discern the difference between truth and lie. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.